Amen, amen. Hey, if you got your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. Last week, there was only about 10 of us in this room, so this feels a little better this week, and so uh, so happy that each and every one of you are here. And I know we still got some people joining us online, uh, sickness and things of that nature going around, so so glad that you could join us as well. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to finish this chapter here today and really progress through this book over these next couple of weeks and finish up by Christmas time, it's hard to believe in three weeks, it'll be Christmas Eve um, in just three weeks. But today's title is Hope for the Hopeless. Hope for the Hopeless. And I want to start with a statement this morning. Jesus is the hope for the hopeless. Jesus is the hope. For the hopeless. And we who belong to Jesus, who are in Jesus, who are following Jesus, who take the name of Jesus, we are to live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless. We are to live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless. Now, many of you have been following the war between Israel and Hamas, and we could look at so many other situations happening around the world right now on pretty much every continent. But with this war being so heavily publicized, many of you have no doubt seen the destruction, you've seen the death, you've seen the despair. And you also have no doubt known that deep in the heart of this mess and brokenness are hostages, women, men, children held captive in very dark circumstances and conditions, even as we gather here this morning. But over this past week or two, both sides struck a temporary ceasefire, a moment of silence, agreed upon because both sides said, okay, we will stop attacking each other for a moment and let some of the captives go. One of the Israeli hostages who was released was a nine-year-old girl named Emily Hand. Nine years old. She turned nine while in captivity. And her story really hit home with me this week because Noah, our oldest, will be nine just next year. So she's basically that third grader, nine years old. And I can only imagine the darkness that ate at her, her, the darkness that she sat in, the darkness that she lived in, the darkness that she felt every single day, day after day after day, just waiting in that darkness for something or someone to set her free to rescue her. Her dad, Thomas Hand, days after her release, told media outlets that his daughter still speaks to him in whispers. He said, listen, I had to put my ear very close to her mouth just to hear. Because in captivity, while she was a hostage, she was told not to make any noise. And I can see the terror in her eyes as she tells me that. Thomas said that when he asked Emily how long she thought she had been in captivity, his nine-year-old daughter replied, about a year. It was something like 50 days. So less than two months, but from her perspective, a timeless reality of darkness. I can only imagine the darkness. And from the dad's point of view, 
I can only imagine the anguish, the anxiety, the deep, authentic care for her welfare, her circumstances and conditions that ate at him, the anguish and anxiety that he sat in and lived in and felt every day, day after day after day. Until finally this week, she was released. Set free from her captivity, and the two were reunited. She went from, if you will, darkness to light, death to life, from captive, hostage to free, from lost to found. And I've thought about these two a lot this week because if I could describe the spiritual true reality of all humanity, it's like Emily in captivity. Captive in darkness, captive in death, captive in despair, hopeless. For the Bible's clear. In our sin, we had no life, we had no light, we had no goodness, we had no access to all that is right. We truly were hopeless. But then there was God, our Father in heaven, so full of anguish at humanity's anguish, so deeply concerned about our welfare, our circumstances and conditions, who saw us in our darkness and did not abandon us to that darkness. For he so desired to set us free from our captivity, so moved by love that he sent hope for the hopeless by giving us Jesus. Jesus, as Paul writes, who, being in the very nature God, Jesus, who's the exact imprint of God's very nature, Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage, but instead, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. As we celebrate this Christmas season, the word become flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in the person, human, Jesus. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the world shouts, and we might even shout, why would he do this? Why would God so do this? Because in humility, in love, he counted us, sinners, more significant than himself. He considered our circumstances and conditions, our welfare, before his own. He saw how hopeless we were, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, the sick who needed a doctor, the dying who needed life. And he genuinely cared. So much so that he laid down his life for us on a cross. Revealing his character and his nature as a loving God. As Paul would write elsewhere, by this we know what love is, that Jesus died for us. John also adds that God so proved his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. God cared deeply about the welfare of humanity. He was anguished at our anguish, moved and compelled to offer hope to the hopeless by sending his one and only son, Jesus. That the hostages, you and I, might be released, set free from captivity and reunited with God. And now in Jesus we have life, we have light, we have goodness, we have access to all that is right, we have hope. 
But as we'll see today, if we have received this hope, if we know this hope, if we live in this hope, this hope who is a person, who is Jesus, then it follows that we will live not for ourselves, but for others. Not for, like the culture, self-fulfillment, but for Christ-fulfillment. It follows that we will live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless. We will live and give the hope of Jesus to both the community and the culture we reside. That we will show hope, speak hope, and live hope. Together, no matter the circumstances, no matter the conversations, no matter the conditions. So that all those still in captivity, your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, your family members, those strangers you see every day, so that all those still in captivity might become free, released, and reunited with God just as we were. So remember, as followers of Jesus, as we've seen in this book of Philippians, the Lord is calling and commanding us to live as a united community in Jesus with an unconditional commitment to Jesus. We're to live as one. We're to live with unflinching and unconditional loyalty to Jesus in everything, in all things. And also, in humility, we are to count others more significant than ourselves. We're to consider other people's interests, their welfare, their conditions and circumstances above and before, or at least in addition to our very own. And from there, we're to serve them and lay down our lives for them because, as Paul reminds us, that's how Jesus lived, even as we just read. And if we want to so prove ourselves to be his followers, if we want to live in such a way that is worthy of the gospel, we will and must do likewise. And all of this begins with a mindset, as Paul reveals in this book. Living like Jesus, it begins with our mindset, and we're to have the same mindset among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. We have it, so live it. So in other words, we're to live the mindset of Jesus together, and we're to live that mindset, as we saw last week, without grumbling and griping. We must choose a unified disposition of gratitude and gladness over grumbling and griping despite our situations or circumstances. In all things, Paul would say elsewhere, give thanks. By doing so, we will, Paul says, shine like stars in a dark world. Now, we might conclude then, after reading everything that we've read, as Paul seems to think that his readers will conclude, that living the way of Jesus, living the mindset of Jesus, especially together, and living that way in our community and culture, it, it's impossible. Like, that, that's impossible. We can't do that. Come on, we can't live this way. It's impossible. Therefore, it's impossible to live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless. Come on. There's a reason they're hopeless. We can't do this. It's impossible. And Paul answers that in this section that we're about to read. No, it is not. No, it's not impossible. And he says this by providing a couple of examples to prove that it's not impossible. One example is a pastor, a young pastor named Timothy. Another person is just a lay person who we don't know much about other than what is shown us in this book. But both of these examples, Paul's readers know personally. Timothy and Epaphroditus. But look at Philippians chapter 2. 
Really, the section is 19 through 30, but we're just going to look at four verses in all this. But look at verse 20 and 21. Paul sets this section up by saying, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Remember, Paul is most likely in Rome, in prison, writing this letter to the believers in Philippi, 800 miles away. And he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. He says that in verse 19. Because, he says in verse 20, I have no one else like Timothy who will show you genuine concern. He has genuine concern for your welfare, your circumstances, and your conditions. He has authentic concern. For, verse 21, everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ, except for Timothy, who lives the mindset of Jesus and looks out for the interests of Jesus. In other words, he is concerned about what Jesus is concerned about, and that is their welfare. Then later on, Paul says in verse 25, skip down there to verse 25, he says, but I also think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, who's my brother, he's my co-worker, he's my fellow soldier, he's also your messenger, he's like your apostle, that's that kind of language Paul uses, he's also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For Epaphroditus longs for all of you. He is distressed. He is anguished because you heard he was ill. And later Paul concludes by saying this in verse 29, Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, with great honor. Honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. Now again, up to this point in Philippians, we might conclude that everything we've read, that living the way of Jesus, living the mindset of Jesus in our community and culture is impossible. Therefore, it's impossible to live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless. And Paul is saying to that, no, it's not. Then he provides a couple of examples to prove it, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and the Philippian church knows them both personally. Timothy was with Paul when they planted this church. Epaphroditus is from Philippi and from this church. But let's first look at Timothy, who he mentions here. And specifically, one characteristic that Paul mentions about Timothy comes in verse 20, that Timothy authentically cared. Timothy actually cared about others. He had genuine concern for their welfare. For their circumstances and conditions. Why? Because Timothy did not look out only for his own interest, but Timothy looked out for the interests of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is interested in the welfare of all humanity. He cares about the welfare of your neighbor. Yes, even that person who plays their music really loud till like one in the morning. He cares about their welfare. He cares about that family member that's always showing up late, always causing discourse in the family. He cares about their welfare. He cares about that coworker that is 
always messing up, always causing problems for you. He cares about your boss. He cares about those employees. He cares about that stranger. He cares about those people on the TV that you curse. He cares about their welfare. He's interested in the welfare of all humanity. Now, much like Paul's day with the Roman culture and the communities he traveled through, Philippi being one of them, we also live in a time and place in which nearly everyone, generally speaking, does everything for self-recognition and self-glorification and self-promotion. We work constantly. Work, 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 even on our lovely vacations. We work, we work, our burdens and yokes are so heavy because of this work. Mentally, physically, spiritually, relationally, you name it. Just trying to keep up with the work, it's heavy. We work, we work, and more work to do what? To produce and push self-content. Pictures, videos, statements, opinions, presentations, via text messages with family groups, via social media, via just indirectly in conversations with others, so that, ultimately for the goal, consciously or subconsciously, so that other people, our family, friends, strangers, whoever, will look to us. Man, check out where I am. Check out what I know. Check out my opinion on this. Check out who I'm with. Check out what I'm doing. Look at me. See me, think about me, like me, promote me. It's all about me. So then what happens? As many people have pointed out, then there comes this competition within ourselves, within our own minds, to keep up with me, producing and pushing me, so as to get people to look at me, see me, think about me, like me, promote me, to be all about me, and then rinse and repeat. And the vicious cycle continues, and the burden gets heavier and heavier and heavier. Why we so often pull out our phones to take a picture of this to send to whoever or to post wherever. We also live in a time and place in which nearly everyone does everything, generally speaking, to gratify or to satisfy their self-interests, which is why we live in such a heavily saturated service culture. Everywhere we go, it's all about service. And why, as we saw last week, so many are occupied with grumbling and griping is because so many are not having their self-interests fully or completely gratified or satisfied. So we grumble and we gripe because we never just quite have what we want. We never just quite have it when we want it, how we want it, or even where we want it. So we live in a time and a place in which nearly everyone does everything, generally speaking, to gratify or to satisfy their self-interest, chasing and chasing and chasing and working and working and working, and the burden just gets heavier and heavier. We've become, as one person said, infused with self and selfishness, like those in Paul's day who sought only self-prestige, self-position, self-popularity, and self-pleasure, even those who preached Jesus in Paul's day. So meanwhile, because of such a heavily self-focused world, culture, and community we live in, who has the time? Who even has the desire to authentically consider and care about 
other people's welfare. I'll care in pretense, but authentically, come on, that's another story. Who has the time? Who actually cares about their circumstances or conditions, their interest? This is the state of the culture, and if we're not careful, such dispositions can sneak into the church and fill the church like a nasty weed in an unchecked yard to where even salvation, to where even Jesus himself, as Paul was discovering in Rome, to where even maybe Christmas becomes about our self-gratifications or self-interests and gripping onto the self for the hope of self-gain. Instead of surrendering self, despite self-pain, at the feet of King Jesus, who is the true hope for our hopelessness. Another source put it this way, we live in an age of unprecedented self, of weightless souls consumed with their own gravity. And today, many Christians actually believe that it is Christian to pursue our self-fulfillment as an ultimate goal in life. Self-fulfillment, not Christ-fulfillment. So if we're not careful, even the church can adopt the Ebenezer Scrooge narrative pre-transformation. We'll have everything, but we'll have nothing. We'll be rich, but we'll be poor. We'll have everyone, but we'll have no one. We'll have light, but we'll have darkness. We'll have life, but we'll have death. We'll have hope, but we'll have hopelessness. We'll have ourselves, but we'll be without Jesus. But Paul is telling his readers, listen, you think it's impossible to live the way of Jesus in your community and culture, to live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless in such a time as this. What he says, listen, you think that's impossible, but I give you Timothy. I give you Timothy, who is unlike anybody else, Paul says. He authentically cares for your welfare. He's possessed with such an authenticity because he was authentically saved by the God who cared for his welfare. And he authentically loved and lived for his God, Timothy did. Thus, Timothy was about God's interests, Jesus' interests, which is a deep, deep care for the welfare of all humanity. So Timothy authentically mirrored the mind, heart, and soul of Jesus. And Paul indirectly is saying, So can you, and so must you. The same Spirit who lived in Timothy lives in you. You have this mind among yourselves. Paul's already said that. It's yours. You have it, so live it. It's not impossible. So like Timothy, let us authentically care about the welfare of others. Without pretense, without hidden motives, let us be about the interests of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul gives us Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is not some great theologian, some great apostle, some great preacher, some great writer, some great name in history. He's just a guy in the church. We don't know much about him. All we know about is what Paul writes here. And what he writes here is that Epaphroditus was anguished, distressed at their anguish at their distress. What's interesting in these verses, we see much mention of worry, much mention of anxiety, much mention of anguish. Now, over the last many years, anxiety has become like a curse word in our culture. In many cases, that's justified, but there can be such a good thing 
as good worry or good anxiety or good anguish. We're anxious to see you. We're anxious to receive those presents or to give those presents. Or it can be the kind of emotion or feeling that wells up deep inside you, that compels you to move forward towards someone for their good, to serve someone, to risk your life for someone, someone who might find themselves in dark circumstances or conditions. For Epaphroditus, that anguish was for both Paul and the church at Philippi. So Epaphroditus was sent by the church in Philippi with a financial care package for Paul. We read this in the context of this whole book. And again, remember, Paul was in prison in Rome, there in Philippi. Epaphroditus is coming from Philippi. It's an 800-mile journey. And he was sent with this financial care package because, according to sources, the Roman prison system did not provide for food. They did not provide for clothing or medical care. Support from others was crucial. So Epaphroditus literally traveled this 800 miles from Philippi to Rome, carrying this package. This was pre-airlines, pre-railroad, pre-cars, to deliver this package to Paul. This would be like you going from Oklahoma City to Chicago, without planes, without trains, without cars. He did this because he was so deeply moved by Paul's circumstances and conditions, which were dark. He was so moved by Paul's welfare that he said, I'll go. And along the way, Epaphroditus got deathly sick. So ill that he nearly died, Paul says. And so word somehow gets back to the church in Philippi, probably a fellow traveler. They hardly ever traveled alone. And the church becomes deeply distressed. But Epaphroditus eventually arrives in Rome, and he himself becomes distressed at their distress after he finds out that they found out. And such distress, the same distress that compelled Epaphroditus to travel 800 miles for Paul, off of the gospel of Jesus, is now compelling Epaphroditus to move back towards the church in Philippi, to make that 800-mile journey once again, the same journey that he nearly died on. So as to serve them, so, down, so as to lay down his life for them, so as to bring a bit of gladness to their souls. So quite literally, Paul is saying Epaphroditus is willing to risk his life for Jesus all for your sake, for the sake of others. His anguish compelled him to move towards others, to serve others, to lay down his life for others. And in this way, Epaphroditus authentically mirrored the mind, heart, and soul of Jesus. So Paul is telling his readers, listen, you think it's impossible to live the way of Jesus in your community and culture, to live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless. Well, I give you Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, who is so anguished at your anguish that he's willing to move towards you no matter the cost, to serve you, to lay down his life for you no matter what, just as Jesus did for us. And once again, Paul indirectly is saying, so can you and so must you. The same spirit lives in you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have it, so live it. But there's a third example in all of this. And it's Paul. So you see in these verses, Timothy is like a son to Paul. Epaphroditus is like Paul's brother. Literally, the translation is a part of his very being or soul. 
Epaphroditus is his co-worker, his fellow worker in the gospel ministry. He's his fellow soldier in this battle. But Paul is so moved by his love for the Philippian church that he's willing, in his dark circumstances, to send his only family, so to speak. In other words, Paul sent them to them because of his love for them. Just like the Father so loved us, that he was willing to send his one and only Son for us. And in this way, Paul mirrored the mind, heart, and soul of God. So if we think it's impossible to live the way of Jesus in our community and culture, if we think it's impossible to live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless, Paul gives us himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus to say, okay, you're right, with man it is impossible to live the mindset of Jesus in such a time as this. To show, speak, and live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless in such a time as this. But with God, all things are possible. So you can live this way. So you must live this way. You have the Spirit of God in you. You have the mind of Christ in you. You have it, so live it. If you are to truly live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus... So can you, so must you. Listen, Jesus is the hope for the hopeless. If we have received that hope, if we know that hope, if we are in that hope, if we celebrate that hope, especially during Advent, a word that simply means the arrival or the coming, the first coming of Jesus, as we celebrate his coming and we look forward to his second Advent, then make no mistake, we are called to authentically care about the welfare of others. To be deeply moved by their circumstances and conditions. We are to so love them that we move towards them. Serve them and lay down our lives for them. We are called to live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless. To live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless. To show hope, to speak hope, to live hope to anyone and everyone. We're to live not self-fulfilled lives, but Christ-fulfilled lives. It's like a Christmas tree, right? Many of you put up trees. We see trees here in the room. It's like a Christmas tree standing in darkness, like a city on a hill, Jesus would say. That it's so filled with unlimited amounts of energy from a source beyond itself, that source for us being God himself. We're to let our light shine among others, Jesus says, that they might see our good works and praise our Father in heaven, that the hopeless in our community and culture might receive the hope of Jesus, know the hope of Jesus, and live in the hope of Jesus, that those still in captivity might be set free, released, and reunited with God. So let us be like Timothy, let us be like Epaphroditus, let us be like Paul, let us be like Jesus, who is the hope for the hopeless, Live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless. That neighbor, that coworker, that family member, that stranger, that person just down the pew from you. Be about Christ's fulfillment, not self-fulfillment. As Paul said elsewhere, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite the team forward.
as we have this time of invitation. For some of us in this room, we just needed a time to, to repent, to confess. We've been living selfishly with self-interest, driving every action or reaction. And God's calling us to repent of that and to surrender your life, despite whatever self-pain might come from it, laid at the feet of King Jesus. For others of us, he's just simply calling us to let go. Let go of the self. Enter into the hope known as Jesus. Surrender lordship to Jesus. For others of us, man, he's placed a person or family or people group on our hearts and minds. So, man, I know they don't have the hope of Jesus. And he's calling for us just to cry out for them, for their sake, to pray for them by name. But maybe to be so filled with anguish at their anguish that he's calling us to move towards them, to have a conversation with them, to extend an invitation to them, whatever it might be. Whatever the Spirit's leading you in this moment, even as I pray, you can come forward if you have a decision to make or a response. You can come forward. Me, Weston will be down here. The steps will be open if you just want to pray. But even as I pray, you can come forward. Father, we thank you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus, Emmanuel, the Word become flesh. We thank you for the hope that you've given to the hopeless. We were dead in our trespasses. We once were darkness. We were lost, found wanting and searching, hopeless, thirsty and hungry, empty. But you gave us Jesus. We thank you. But Father, help us not turn that into self-absorption, but to turn that outward and to extend that light to others, to go and live and give the hope of Jesus to the hopeless. Whatever that looks like, crossing a street, crossing an aisle, walking across the room, making a phone call, sending out a text, whatever it looks like, help us to live and give that hope of Jesus to the hopeless, especially in the Christmas season. We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. I ask that you stand with us as we sing this song. You come forward if you have a decision to make.